This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Joining me today to share the stories behind his 10 best spiritual books is meditation teacher, author, interviewer and charity founder, Feroz Dada. Feroz Dada was an international tax consultant in London when a chance meeting with a freedom fighter and a Buddhist monk while on a family trip to Myanmar set him on an unexpected path that transformed the lives of hundreds of orphans and abandoned children being looked after in a remote monastery on the shores of Lake Inlay in Burma. Feroz subsequently became a meditation practitioner, practitioner, interviewer and producer of the online TV series Discovering Humanity and Our One World, and author of Children of the Revolution, A Spiritual Journey to Burma and Buddhism, and his newly released book, The Disciple, A Spiritual Path to Infinite Happiness. Feroz Dada, welcome. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for having me on your show again, actually. We, uh, you very kindly asked me to talk to you some three or four years ago. So thank you yes. very much. I very much admire what you do to promote spirituality. I admire your passion, your energy, and your commitment. So it's a privilege to be with you today, Sandy. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you for agreeing to submit your 10 best list of books that inspired you the most on your life journey and what a life journey it's been. Um, we will talk about some of the uh, stories that you share in Children of the Revolution a little later in the show. First, tell me a little bit about um, what books have meant to you over the years. Um, this may come as a little bit of a surprise, but but in many ways, I read little, but what I read, I try to pick very carefully and then reflect upon it. And in particular, when I'm writing, I try not to read because I feel it does sort of hinder creative thoughts and you mm. unconsciously pick up things which which are not yours. So what does it mean to me? It means a great deal to me in terms of learning rather than entertainment and and then beginning to be able to practice what what uh, what i learn i think this is what it really means to me so it wasn't difficult for you to pick 10 well it's always difficult to pick 10 of the best but but in a sense it wasn't difficult because my focus uh in my new book, and the focus for us to talk about really is stems from finding ourselves in a challenging world today, yeah. a world which is in war in Ukraine, a world which is in pandemic, uh, a world which we are struggling with climate change and possible disaster, and I fear financial difficulties. So I think the books I've chosen are to help us navigate through these difficulties that we, that, we fall, uh, that we face today. So in a sense, it wasn't difficult because they're directed exactly to where we are today in this mm. challenging time, as I hope we will see as we begin to talk. Absolutely. So let's talk about the very first one, which is a beautiful novel based on the life of the world's most loved Sufi mystic Rumi. And the book is The Way of Love by Nigel Watts. And I think it was published in 1999. 
Um, you have more knowledge about books than I do, but I suspect, uh, I suspect this particular book about Rumi might have been at that time, but there've been many books about Rumi mm. and his life. But, uh, but what I really wanted to, of course, for those of us who don't know who Rumi is, uh, forgive me, I'll just say he was a 13th century Sufi mystic. Um, and central to the book, is really how he meets his teacher, Shams of the Breeze. Um, and how the teacher then, then changes him, um, uh, changes him from becoming an intellectual and a community leader into probably one of the great mystics and poem, poets of all time. And the main point about the book, I feel, is the adage uh, when the student is ready, the master will appear. When the student is ready, the master will appear. What does it mean? You know, when I was um, when I was a teenager, I read about this encounter that Rumi had with Shams, and it was like an electrical charge, a vibration, and suddenly they knew, knew that they were going to work together within seconds. I thought this was some sort of um, myth, you know, some sort of fairy tale, that it could never happen. It was just in the books. And, but the truth of the matter is that this is how the student meets the teacher. And Sandy, if you were to ask me, well, what does it mean? What does it really mean? It really means that the master picks up the vibrations of a student who is ready to go on the path. It is not a mind thing. It's not like somebody sending you an email saying, I want to be your student. It is more the master picking up the vibrations at a soul level from the student and the student giving that, that feeling of seeking mm. into the universe. And that's how, that's how, uh, the master and student get together in, a, in the spiritual path. But I had to wait a long time for that to happen to me. <laughs> it wasn't until I was in my 50s that I met my uh, spiritual master. And then I realized that this is not a myth. This is mm -hmm. the way the universe operates in a beautiful way. Mm. So this book really is about by Rumi, Rumi's life and how he meets his teacher and what happens with the teacher and the student and the transformation of Rumi. Mm. Yeah. And it's not the only Rumi book on your list. Uh, you have a great reverence for Rumi, as do many, many, many people. And uh, who, who, who wouldn't love his work when they listen to some of the, the truths that he shares? You know, my favourite is, um, you know, your children. Your children are not your children. Um, just the wisdom. The wisdom is just, he's probably, I think, one of the greatest teachers that's ever lived. Oh, sadly. Uh, in, a, in a sense, my, my book, A Disciple, really works around Rumi and his... Let me share something with you, Sandy, and, 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 and uh, with your viewers and uh, with our... Sorry. I read Rumi when I was probably 20. I thought it was beautiful verses and nice poetry. I read at 30 and at the age of 40. When I read at the age of 50, having gone through some of my spiritual path and 60, I began to realize what he was really saying. In a way, Rumi's understanding Rumi is up to your limitation. It's not mm. about what he is saying, mm. but how limited are you yourself to yeah. understand the depth of his knowledge? And for that reason, I use Rumi as a little bit of a spiritual guide in my book. Although I have my own Ustad, my guide, he is one who we recognize his poetry. So I've used that as a little bit of a, um, mm. uh, a guiding force. Mm. So... Book number two is your own book, Children of the Revolution, A Spiritual Journey to Burma and Buddhism, which you've included because much of its content is sharing the wisdom of the great 
Buddhist monk at the monastery at the Inlay Lake in Myanmar. And also, we should make it very clear to our viewers, because all of the income, all of the author income goes to the Inlay Trust charity to help the children at the monastery. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this book, a little bit about that experience and the wonderful work the Inlay Trust is doing, looking after these orphans and yeah. you know, disenfranchised children. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I never miss a chance because, <laughs> <coughs> because it, means, it means giving it the a profile uh, and bringing in the donations and so on. And the, yeah. and the biggest gift, of course, was His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, uh, agreeing to endorse the book. And mm -hmm. it was a game changer. It was really a game changer. The amount of influence and the amount of doors that opened is yes. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, but let me, let me tell you a little bit about the book, if, you, if the experience and why it's such an important experience. I mes met my spiritual master in 20, 2010, and he initiated uh, and became my teacher. And the very next day, I was flying off to Burma. And on this holiday that we, it's a family holiday because my wife, uh, Mumu, comes from Burma, but it was the first time we were going as a family. Uh, we were on a lake, and a beautiful lake in Inle Lake, which is surrounded by mountains, the Shan Hills. And on a beautiful sunny day, suddenly the weather changed. There was a thunderstorm, lightning, and so we had to take refuge onto the island. And of course, where do you take refuge in Burma, but a monastery? <laughs> and there standing on the door was this monk. And I remember, I can never forget this man, tall man, saffron robe. He stood there and I, actually I was thrown off literally physically by his energy and his personality. And I realized, oh my goodness, well, what, is, what is this man? Anyway, he took us into the, into the monastery and uh, as the rain and, and the clouds passed, he said, let me show you around. And what he showed us in the monastery was three, 400 orphaned and abandoned children. But what I immediately noticed that although they had nothing, literally the poorest of the poor, they were so happy. They were just exuding happiness, you know. And that moment, I realized something was happening at this place. And my wife and I committed at that moment that we would help the monastery to become self-sufficient. Um, so the story is in the book, but, uh, but I, can, I can say that over the last 12 years, we've had 12 projects, including a water factory, um, a farm, for growing cereals and food, clinic, uh, dental clinic, uh, educational um, establishment, and we have 1,200 children there. So even in this time again of war in, in Burma, uh, the monastery is like a shining star. And, uh, but of course, all these things you don't realize, but you gain more than you give. Mm. What doesn't realize that at that time? And what the monk did for me was he taught me meditation. Not in the ordinary sense, but over the 12 years, every moment, he said, I think he felt he had to repay me <laughs> in, a, in that sense. And, and so he, he would persist, he would teach me meditation. Um, and that that really changed my 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 path really um, mm. the book is very exciting i mean you know you're in the midst of the the revolutionary wars um and these children many of them are orphans or have been abandoned because of those wars and you've got help from some surprising places and people and so there's a lot of drama in the book and a lot of excitement you know it could be a novel it could be a movie yeah 
see, see the drama here was the extra many extraordinary things happened, and uh, Sandy, you'd understand because well, you'd understand. <laughs> um, it was like wishing for something to happen, and it would happen. But not only would it happen, but it would be twice as good as you wanted. Let me give you an example. I remember, and this is just one of many. I remember we set up the medical clinic for the children because children were ill, you know, from ringworm and all these little, little things and difficulties. And I remember we built a clinic, but we didn't have a doctor. Now, this is a very remote part of Burma. So I remember going from the building, taking a boat to catch at the airport. So as I was sitting in the boat, I said, oh, I wish, I wish we had a doctor. So I lined up at the airport, which is a small airport, a Heho airport, you know, where you stand outside and the planes come and get you. <laughs> you can literally walk on any plane. And suddenly I see, see this lady walking towards me. And uh, she says, oh, what are you doing? And so on and so forth. And, and I asked her, and I asked her name. And she said, now, I'm sure she won't mind my repeating this. She said, my name is Dr. Jane Dunbar. And I looked at her and said, my God, I've been waiting for you, I said. And she was a bit alarmed. <laughs> Moved back saying, why is he saying I've been waiting for you? I said, I've been waiting for a doctor to come to the clinic. And of course, we parted. I sent uh, a copy of my book. And do you know something? She turned up six months later for the launch of the clinic. There's our only meeting, right? And up to this day, eight years later, she runs the clinic. She looks after the clinic and has inducted many other doctors and so on. So you see, this only one of so many different things happening, like, you could say, like magic. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. And all true. Um, book number three, The Art of Living. Uh, William Hart, tell us about this book. So, um, so as I mentioned that the monk uh, was teaching me meditation, um, and, and I wanted to learn more about this, understand more about this type of meditation called Vipassana meditation. Um, and the best way to, one of the best books I read on Vipassana meditation is The Art of Living. And this is the Goenka method. And Goenka was actually an Indian who went to Burma and learned this method which was Buddha's method of teaching Vipassana. Now, the best way I can explain, and explain not the book, but explain the essence of Vipassana meditation, which I have in my own book as well, but just this one phrase will describe what Vipassana meditation is. What Buddha said was this, he said, sensations is a crossroad where mind and body meet. Sensations is the crossroads where mind and body meet. Now, this is bizarre, but basically what he's saying is this, that whenever there is something happening outside a particular incident, a smell or touch or uh, a sound, the first thing that happens is your body reacts. It's not your mind, your body mm -hmm. reacts. Example, example, uh, let's see, let's assume, Sandy, you, you get, I get angry with you, and and suddenly what happens is my heart starts beating, and uh, uh, you know we start sweating, and and uh, you know the chest gets tight. So there's a body reaction to what is happening. When the body reacts, the mind then picks up this reaction and goes back to something we've learned in the past, maybe another episode of anger, mm -hmm. and then suddenly we react. And the reaction is actually almost always irrational because you're reacting. And you're reacting with preconditioned uh, mind. Mm -hmm. So what this, um, what this meditation teaches you is 
to not react to body sensations. And this is a breath meditation, a full body breath meditation. And what is the effect of that in, in, in general? Is that you act, you look at the situation calmly as it unfolds in front of you. And then you look at it with equanimity, uh, with a sense of, of balance. And then you act upon it rather than react with preconditioned thoughts. And in many ways, when people talk about mindfulness, I'm afraid it's the word which has been banded around uh, quite carelessly, I'd say. But the truth is, this type of meditation is Buddha's greatest gift to mankind. There's no question in my mind. Of course, we know about karma and all these things, but this meditation is truly, uh, is truly uh, life-changing. And I, I would recommend this book. And was this meditation, this form of meditation, taught to you by the monk? Or had you learned this before from your own teacher? No, actually, uh, uh, and again, I described this in, in A Disciple, what happens, but, uh, but even he wouldn't teach me that. He said, no, you need to go away for at least 10 days. This is oh, on, uh, 10 days of no speaking, no, no communication, verbal or nonverbal, um, meditation for 15, 16 hours a day, no less than that, and in seclusion. So he sent me off to another monastery, uh, which specializes in this, and that's where I, I got my first, uh, first um, teachings. Was it hard? Um, yes, to start with. Mm. I, think, I think the problem, the first two or three days, the body is in pain because you're sitting for 15 hours. Um, and then, uh, and you're only breathing what, what we call anapana meditation, just through the sort of breath meditation through the nose. As, as the energy is building up on the fourth day, the teacher there tells you to move this energy throughout your body. And then something quite dramatic happens. There's an explosion, effectively, in your mind. And the whole body then becomes synchronized. And then you don't feel any pain. You don't mm. feel, you just, just harmony of body and soul, just bliss. And so the next six days are easier. <laughs> Easy, yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, book number four is quite different. Um, <laughs> The Music of Silence, a memoir by Andrea Bocelli. Um, I've seen the, uh, I assume it's the uh, movie of the book. Um, what a story. Oh, um, I bring this in because it's not typical of the other books, as you can see. But yet it is. Yet it is about a man who is truly spiritual. I mean, he is deeply spiritual. And I remember, um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell you a story from my book. But um, uh, once my book, uh, Children of the Revolution, was, was released, I had a phone call from an uh, online TV company saying, would I like to do a series called Discovering Humanity, where I could go and interview different people who did amazing things for the world, you know. And uh, I remember the producer saying to me, do you have any, do you have a dream person uh, who could launch the show? And I said, ah, oh, Andre Bocelli. And uh, the guy looked at me and said, do you know Andre Bocelli? I said, no, I don't know him. <laughs> he said, well, how are we going to get Andre Bocelli to, to get you to interview him? But there's a series of things that happen, as I said to you before, that when the universe wants you to do something, and it's in the book, the story is beautiful. And before I knew it, I was in Andrew Bocelli's home, uh, and we were sitting there, and I was interviewing him. It was like magic. But why do I say it's so amazing? I say this because, first of all, he said, look, he lost his sight when he was 11. Mm. I became completely blind. 
And what does he say at this moment of blindness? He said, I felt sorry. I felt sorry for my mother, not for myself. What would she feel? And bang, I thought, my God, this guy has something special. Mm. And when I talked to him, I realized that he was really, really far on the spiritual path. And he said to me, I remember saying, people want to come and talk to me about my music. And, and that's wonderful too. But not very many people come and say, well, what's your spiritual um, yeah. uh, world like? And, uh, and, um, and so for, for that reason, I would say, say it, is, it is a spiritual book. But it's a light-hearted spiritual book. Oh, well, it's a, a very, very inspiring story. Very yes, inspiring. And, I think, and I think that actually those who are interested, I, um, my program, which is called um, The Power of Silence, is on YouTube, uh, which are Andrew Bocelli, and it's worth watching. Yeah. Um, yeah. So book number five, Spiritual Power, How It Works by Llewellyn Vaughan Lee. How can we use spiritual power to heal and transform mm. the world? Mm. Now, this is a very interesting book because it's not something that people would generally come across because it's a, it's a sort of Sufi mysticism book. But, but the reason why I found this so interesting is that um, Llewellyn actually does not bring religion into this. He keeps spirituality, and as it should be in my opinion, quite separate, yet he mm -hmm. tackles Sufism, this power of the breath, the power of, of the universe in the Sufi way. And now for a, for a Westerner to do that and, and, and articulate it so beautifully. But in short, what he does, and which is what I learned from my own spiritual master when I met him, is this Sufi meditation. It's a breath meditation called Zikr or Dikr. And this is a meditation of the heart. Um, what do I mean by meditation of the heart? Uh, you see, in... In Sufi mystical practice, uh, unlike Buddhist meditation, which is a meditation of the senses, uh, smell, touch, mind, cognition, the Sufi meditation is a meditation of the heart. Because the Sufis discovered through their practices that we have uh, the subtle senses as well as our actual physical senses the senses of intuition, the senses of perception, consciousness, and these are not tangible senses. Uh, to give you an example, I mean, a lot of us get a glimpse of that in our lifetimes. And, you know, one day you're sitting and say, oh, Sandy was just going to call me and bring the telephone rings. <laughs> or I'm sitting with Sandy, I can see what she's thinking. I mean, we get glimpses of this sixth, seventh sense, if you like. Mm -hmm. And this Sufi meditation refines these senses, these chakras that are in our body, called Latifa. And, and Llewellyn, in his book, really explains it well. And I was impressed. Um, he calls it the energy of life. Um, I read something from him. He said, with every breath, the energy of life flows from the inner to the outer and our consciousness directs its flow. And uh, so I would, anybody who's interested in, in this form of meditation, um, how, to, how to understand the unity of everything, of, of oneness, of the universal energy, and how to, how to feel, uh, how to feel the world in a different way, actually, not just through our senses, but through our inner senses, the world is much richer, Sandy, as we switch on all our senses. Yes, indeed. As you, have, as you know. Have you ever interviewed Llewellyn? Mm, thank you for that suggestion. 
Well, when you do, when you do, pass him on to me afterwards. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you have a deal. And if you do, first. Okay, oh, deal. I tell, you what, I tell you what, we'll do it together. Okay. That would okay. be interesting. No. Yes. Um, okay. okay. Leave it to me. To okay. Me. All right. So book number six, The Last Barrier, A True Story of a Journey into Ultimate Reality by Richard Field. Now, I also found that there's a copy of this with another title, which is The Last Barrier, A Journey into the World of Sufi Teaching. Um, I think when they publish books, sometimes uh, each individual publisher does yeah. a different type of cover mm. and so on. Mm. And I, but I think intrinsically, they're the same book. Again, he goes into Rumi, and uh, and um, and this is a wonderful story. I think it's a true story of this man called Richard Field, who um, who meets uh, antique dealer in London, I think Bond Street or somewhere. And um, he realizes that this man is a spiritual teacher. And the spiritual teacher tells him, look, you've got to sell your business, you've got to leave everything if you want to follow the path and come to Turkey with me. So he, he, he throws everything away. And then the story begins when he, he goes on and follows his teacher. I think the main point about this is, is a repeat of what we talked about, uh, about Rumi and Shumps going on mm -hmm. a spiritual journey, or indeed myself on, on when I met my master. But here, this, this is an important story because it describes really well that the spiritual master is not teaching you in a normal way. This is really important. He's not teaching you things you understand. So the important thing here is to not question the master because he's teaching you spirituality and he's been on that path, whereas you're not on that path. And the spiritual way of thinking is different to the physical mind way of thinking. And the, and the hurdle that, that Richard goes through uh, to rationalize and not rationalize, if you like, uh, his master's uh, teachings and his requests and his really odd things he, he does and says. But this is what the path is. For, for, and I remember when I met my teacher the first time, the first thing he said to me is, he said, Firoz, throw away those books. Stop going to these lectures, <laughs> you know. Um, just sit still in silence and the world will open up for you, which is, uh, which is one of the things. Again, I didn't understand even a simple thing like that. I didn't understand mm -hmm. because books and books are good, of course, as a, as a way of learning. But on the spiritual path, you have to be careful because it is a, experiential learning more than a learning of words. Yeah. If, if the words can guide you and inspire you, as I, uh, as I say in my own book, I say, look, my, my job is to just share my journey, um, but I want you just to be inspired to do your own. What I experience, you may not experience. You will experience something that you need to experience mm. on the path. So I think this book was very interesting, very good reading, and um, and I'd recommend it. It's a beautiful journey and written mm. so well. <laughs> Did you, I mean, you had a very, very, very lucrative career. Did your teacher ask you to give that up or did you choose to give it up to do the work that you've been doing? Very, very good question, Sandy. Yeah. <sighs> you know what he did? So I met him in, in 2005, when he came into my office. I remember the first time he walked in, I didn't realize, but I was feeling happy and joyful. And, and actually after the meeting, I remained joyful for, for days. And every time I met him for an office meeting, I'd be jumping up and down. I didn't know what was going on. <clears throat> then I asked him, I said, um, Ustad, 
but I didn't know what he did. He was he's a client of mine, and I looked after his business affairs. And I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a, I'm a spiritual teacher. So I said to him, please, can you take me on? I've been, you know, I've been looking for, to discover myself. <laughs> and he said, no, no, you're not ready yet. You know, you're not ready yet. Anyway, he used the word yet, so that was good. <laughs> and I asked for the next five years, I asked him. And of course, by that time, I was beginning to, I was ready to give up. Mm. You know, I was ready to give up. And so he waited for me in a sense, using my energy and force and directing me in this way. I say in my book that it was like the bow uh, leaving, uh, the, the arrow leaving the bow at the perfect time, because if it had gone earlier, it would not mm. have taken that path. So the master, what does he do? In my case, he waited for me until I was ready to give up my physical life. He was, he was watching, he was teaching me quietly, but not pushing me through until I was ready to give it up. And then he realized that then I was ready to go onto the path in a sort of more committed basis. Is that when he initiated you? Yes. And so five years later, in 2010, initiation is simply a, it's a short meditation. Hmm. And, uh, and just for those... I can tell you in retrospect what happens in, in this initiation. Um, at that time, I don't know what happened, of course. But um, what happens is this, that, that uh, you begin to see the world in different ways. You, you see what the world wants from you, not what you want from the world. Mm. Yet, so that's why I recognize what was happening at the monastery in Burma. The old Faroes could never have recognized this. He would have just had a good holiday, made a donation and walked away mm. to his amazing life in Mayfair. Mm. Um, and this is not a matter of sacrifice. Never be, never be. I mean, I'm not doing anything because there's a big sacrifice. It's just that you realize that this is a much more satisfying way to live. You're still being selfish in that sense. You're doing it because you want to do it, except that what you want to do is something else. So when, when you went back after that experience at the monastery and told your teacher, he wasn't surprised. Not at all. In fact, Not uh, at all. throughout this time, because he realized that this, in Sufism it's called turning the heart. It basically is... Your eyes look, you look at the world in a different way. It's a very, mm. in a way, a very simple process. Sorry, not simple, but yet it is. Yeah. It is what the world wants from you, not what you want from the world. Yeah. Yet you want that, want it that way. You yeah. want it to be that way. Um, and I realized this when I came to the sanctuary, our Sylvan Healing Sanctuary. I realized I wanted to be involved. I wanted to help. I wanted to to teach there, I wanted to be involved in that. And it was no sacrifice. I gained every moment, every time. Um, so I think if, if more people in this world got their satisfaction and happiness from not just doing what they want, but also in this process helping people, I mm. think the world would be a different place. Indeed it would. Yes. Book number seven, The Mysticism of St. Francis of Assisi by D.H.S. Nicholson. Again, um, uh, this book is uniquely not a religious book. It is about, and I'll read something which, which, it, which it says, um, uh, what does it say? It's not, it's not confined, so it's not confined to any one school of thought, nor is it dependent on any particular creed common to the East and the West. It is for everybody. And the main point, is, and the reason why I admire St. Francis so much, and I've been following his, his life and his, his um, teachings, is that he was really a, a mystic monk. He was not a, a religious priest. He was a monk. Uh, and his life teaches us about 
having regard to the higher self and not just be consumed by a lower self. In other words, not just being consumed by our physical life, but also giving our spiritual life uh, uh, the, the attention, not only that it deserves, because our soul is also on our journey, on an infinite journey, in my opinion. Um, and if we can balance those two things, in, in many ways, of course, St. Francis was an extreme example, wasn't he? He actually gave everything. He gave unconditional love to God. Mm. But this is only a, an example for us to follow. If we can just balance a life between the physical and the spiritual, I think we will be much better for it, all of us. And we had a much more compassion, much more love, and uh, much more consideration for humanity, as St. Francis uh, did so much for humanity. So it is it is an unusual book, because uh, most of the other books that picked up on St. Francis was to do with his life or what he did and you know, his stories, but not as 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 his mystical life, which mm. which I think this book is hard. It's a hard read. It's difficult to read, but it's profound. It's a worthy read. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, book number eight, uh, perennial favourite of mine and many many others, <laughs> The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Um, just beautiful. Yeah, isn't it? Mm. I know. I know. It's only fifty odd pages, isn't it, Shanti? Yet every word is so meaningful, and um, and we are limited by our comprehension, not limited by what Khalil Gibran is saying. Mm. And and the one thing I want to really point out, perhaps, and just if you don't mind, read a couple of lines. Mm. Go um, ahead, um, because it has has a very important and central theme running through all his teachings in this book anyway. For example, and I think you quoted that earlier on about children. Mm. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters for life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. Now, I'll leave that and I'll talk about marriage because that's in a way, children and marriage <laughs> go yep. together. So what he says about marriage, give your heart, but not into each other's keeping. For only the hands of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together. For the pillars of the temple are apart. And the oak and the cypress grow not in each other's shadows. Do you know what he's saying, in my view, humble opinion? He's, he's talking about possessiveness and control. Mm. Those facets are so damaging, you know, damaging to our children. We stop them from following their own path in this world, their own journey. We, 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 uh, we taint them with our prejudices when they're young. Um, and then, then we want to possess them mm. and control them. Equally in marriage, the biggest problem is possessiveness yeah. and control. But you know, we only flourish as the oak and cypress grow not in each other's shadow. We have to give freedom to our children. We have to give freedom to our, our husband or wife, to our loved ones to follow their path. And I think we are only limited by what Khalil Gibran is so profound. And, uh, and I, I would, would add, say to... I was going to say, I would add to that, that we could take it one step further. And we should give that kind of freedom to everybody to live their own path. Of course. And how, mm. how wonderful that would be too. Um, but these are nearest and dearest, you see, and yeah. and that's why possessiveness comes comes into play. Yeah, but and if more people course. did it that way, then more people would be willing to give that freedom to others. Yeah. yeah. So I would say to people, 
just read one one page at a time. They're 50, 52 pages or something, one day. Um, uh, maybe one one page a week, fine. Mm. Think about it, think about the words, read it again. It's fantastic. Yeah, talk about shifting one's perceptions. Yeah. Mm. So book number nine is The Alchemy of Happiness by Hazrat Inayat Khan. Um, I'm not quite sure when that was published, but tell us about this book and how it came into your life. Actually, I read this book after I'd finished writing my Disciples. It's the last book I read, actually. Um, and um, I think it's a, it's a series of six books. Um, yes. All on the spirituality, and he's uh, amazing, a really amazing book, an amazing series of books. Again, I make no apology, but it is to do with Sufism, uh, yet not religious. It's very encompassing Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, and Buddhism, all good cultures on which he draws from. Um, let me give an example of how uh, one of the things that I was so fascinated to read uh, but, uh, Sandy, do you mind if I ask you a question? Go ahead. Because, I'll tell you when you've asked because, me. <laughs> be, because, because, you are, because you are a teacher and, uh, in, in so many ways. I was grappling with this concept of free will and destiny. And I was grappling is, I mean, how does free will work and how does destiny come into play? What is their relationship? You, you're asking me that question. Yes, Penny. I can tell you what I think. I had, I, um, I had a guest on the radio show uh, a few months back, actually, who'd written a book, and, and basically they were saying that science has proven that we don't have free will. So I've been arguing with him ever since, um, <laughs> in a nice, in a nice way. Um, yeah. I think that. There is destiny, but we have the choice as to whether we are going to step up to the plate, take notice of all of the, you know, things pulling us towards it, and whether we go ahead with it or not. I think that's, you know, we ultimately have the choice of whether we want to follow that destiny. Wonderful. That's just my view. Wonderful. I, I, and I'm going to ask you at this point, I hope one day you let me interview you. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the letter. Let me tell you okay. what uh, what Hazrat Inayat says, and I thought he said it really, really well, almost as good as you. He said, uh, uh, he said, uh, very often a thinking person asks whether there is free will or destiny, as it seems to him that these two cannot both exist at the same time. It is on with them as it is with light and darkness. In reality, there's no such thing as darkness. There is less light and more light. Only when they are compared do we distinguish them as light and darkness. In the same way, one can look at free will and destiny. The, dealing, the destiny is always at work with free will and free will with destiny. Mm. And then what you said matters, that as you push your free will, destiny mm. begins to work with the free will. I think yeah. you just said stepping up. Yeah. yeah, stepping up. And I think what happens is that you, it draws you, it draws you, and you want to follow it. You want to follow it. So there's no right. question of will I or won't I. Mm. Wonderful. Well done. So book number 10 <laughs> is really, again, Whispers of the Beloved. I'm sorry. I'm so, I don't apologize. Because, no, because, don't. Don't apologize. I, I mean, yeah, no, no. What, a, what a person to be so inspired by. Mm. So uh, this particular book, I've, I've borrowed, uh, I borrowed a translation from this book for my book. And in, in the last chapter where I talk about gratitude, and, and the quote I've, I've used is this, when compassion fills my heart, free from all desire, 
I sit quietly like the earth. My silent cry echoes like thunder throughout the universe. Now, question, why is gratitude so important? You know, gratitude is important because if we appreciate our life, if we appreciate the great privilege of being in this world and experiencing it in our physical form, which is a, a rare and beautiful experience, of course there are hardships, but they come with the territory. So gratitude, in a, in a pragmatic sense, gratitude is a positive thing anyway. But when you experience and, 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 and acknowledge the grace in meditation particularly, which is what Rumi is talking about, uh, compassion fills my heart, free from all desire. I sit quietly like the earth. My silent cry echoes like thunder throughout the universe. So when we acknowledge this gratitude, we are filled with love and compassion ourselves because that is the way it works. Mm -hmm. And when you are filled with love and compassion, then everything that you do is tainted with love and compassion. You see, people say you should change people from the outside. Oh, I'll get this person to, to do things this way. But this is not the answer. The answer is that you have to be inspired from the inside mm. so that everything that you do, everything that you do is tainted by this love and compassion. And how wonderful this life would be and this earth if we, if we all sat for meditation, <laughs> spent a bit of time going inwards and feeling this love and compassion. So I say gratitude is so important. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. Let me ask you about um, the monastery. Um, yeah. The children, you've been around that, been involved for many years now. You've seen some of those children grow up. <laughs> that must be an amazing experience to watch these children thrive and to be part of the team that is, you know, helping them all become self-sufficient so that they can contribute so that more children can come and be cared for at the monastery. So the wonderful uh, observation, because having been going there for the last 12 years, you're quite right. You've seen these children grow up um, and take shape and, and, um, and, uh, uh, pursue their careers and some become doctors, some become nurses, you know, they're all uh, in, because a monk is very careful for them to go into caring professions. He encouraged them to be carers, mm -hmm. nurses, doctors. Uh, but the remarkable thing is this, that they all come back to help the monk. Yeah. The monk. So whenever I'm there, somebody or the other comes up and you know, I see they've grown up <laughs> and they, they just they come and help the monastery because they love the monastery. It's their home. And yeah. whenever they can, they come and help. So yes, it is hugely rewarding, Sandy, hugely. I imagine some of those children have become monks themselves. Um, one or two, yes, some have, but one or two who were novice monks, young monks, have actually become, become not become monks, if you see what I mean. So I think mm. it's gone either way, yeah. if you see what yeah. I mean. So, but there, yeah. there are people who will continue the work of the monk that started the, yeah. Yeah, yeah you see, the, the main point, I know, I know we're going back to where we started in a way, but the main point is that the monk from the, the day they've come to the monastery teaches them meditation, you see. And he would take meditation early in the morning and in the evening, the whole of the monastery. And this stays with them all their life. This mm. is life-changing, particularly at the early days of their, of their life. They genuinely have changed forever because that yeah. is the time yeah. the youth, the young children, when they take on these beautiful 
practices, their life has changed forever. Mm. Yeah, the skills they have, the, the tools they have um, to cope with anything that they encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Is the, um, is the freedom fighter still involved? Uh, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, very much so. Um, very much so. I was trying to... Now, this is a little bit of a secret, so it can stay between us. <laughs> okay, just between us. <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to send some money uh, because we, we were buying some uh, agricultural land so that, because there are refugees at the monastery now. And, um, and of course, it, what I'm about to say is quite legitimate, so it's okay. Um, but we can't send money to, to Burma because it's in civil war, effectively, and under army rule. So we had to send it to somebody in Singapore. And then that's where the freedom fighter got the money from Singapore and took it to, to the monastery. So there you are, still hard mm -hmm. at work. <laughs> Good, yes. I grew rather fond of him reading your book. <laughs> oh, you must, Sandy, you must go and meet him. You must go meet the freedom fighter, meet the monk one day. What a and you'll have, that would be. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, I'll arrange it for you, I promise. I'll arrange everything for you. You will never forget. Because this place has an energy, energy about it, which is alive. Mm. Yes. If, as soon as this war stuff goes away, I hope, mm. please yeah. go. go. It's, it'll be a holiday anyway. Amazing holiday. In an amazing country. Yeah, yeah. So how many children are there now? There are 1,200 children. So you've doubled it since, doubled the well, number actually, of children, or more than well, double since three, you first discovered times. it. Three, three times. Three times. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'm not responsible for those children, but... Uh, no, no, yeah, but yeah. you've helped. Of you've course. helped bring together many yeah. people who yeah. are engaged yeah. now and supporting yeah. it. So you also teach and promote meditation at the Sylvan Healing Sanctuary in North London. Tell us a little bit about the sanctuary. Yeah, it's, it's strange that, um, that uh, 12 years ago, I, uh, I went to the monastery in Burma and, and it became my home in a sense with so many children. Uh, equally, uh, some four or five years ago when I entered the sanctuary and there's a story again in the book is what happens. I felt as soon as I entered, I felt that was also my spiritual home. Mm -hmm. um, the healers, they do wonderful healing. And, uh, and when I walked in, she, they opened every door for me. I was so privileged. They, they, they shared with me everything that I needed to know or, or wanted to know and more. And, and particularly in, in the book again, uh, my, uh, particularly Craig, who is the person who, who um, uh, was a leading light and Cheryl also and others, um, actually showed me a way that one could connect with spirit and your spirit guides, and, uh, and how, how those, uh, that type of meditation helped me move along my spiritual path. It is, it's a beautiful part of that journey continuing from one place to another. And, um, and uh, I love to go there, I love to, to to be able to teach more meditation now that we'll be opening again. And I, and I would say to people, uh, please come get in touch at the Sylvan Healing Sanctuary in London. Um, you know, we're happy to, to, to help you. And it's been going for 70 years? Oh, it must be, yeah, 60, 70 years, I'm sure. Wow, yeah. that's a long time. It's a long time, and I, I would say this is the second batch of of healers and in the last one we talked about Joan Fountain mm. passed away six months ago at the age of 97. Such a powerful healer 
such an amazing medium, um, powerful medium, um, a beautiful person and a beautiful friend. So, what a great legacy she's left. She has. Yeah. And I made some programs. Uh, uh, and if, if you have two minutes, I'd like to share one program, one, one, one point with you. Sandy, mm. do we have one? Yeah. Um, see, uh, when I, I went to see her, I realized she had so much teaching to offer, profound things, she used to say. I used to take my camera and just let it roll, uh, not knowing what I'd do with it. But I wanted to capture whatever she had to say. Um, um, and then I ended up making some videos on YouTube and, and sharing them. But the most important one was the last one I made. And that was in October, I think it was um, last year. And whenever I went there, I'd ask her a question, not premeditated question, anything that came to mind. So I said, uh, John, tell me about, um, uh, about the afterlife. You know, what is it like? What happens? And of course, she started and, uh, and the camera was rolling. And I thought, my God, she's amazing. And suddenly, her, and she described this, how beautiful it is to pass over and, and how she wished people knew what it was like because they would never fear death if, if, they, if they realize how beautiful it is. And suddenly her demeanor changed as though she was there already. Okay. And she was describing the journey. Now it's on the video on YouTube. And um, then I realized that she was already on a journey. Two weeks later, she passes away. But I knew that she was, I knew that I would not see her again because she mm. was already on that journey and she was describing her journey. Mm. And she was leaving a final gift, mm. if you like, of her knowledge. And her knowledge saying, do not fear death. It's like a rebirth. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful happening. Mm. So before we close, um, tell us about your latest book, The Disciple, The Spiritual Path to Infinite Happiness. May I, may I show this? You may. <laughs> And this is this um, this uh, the sale proceeds all all income goes to the Silver Healing Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, please buy it. And not only not only it is a beautiful summary of all the all the things that I've learned from my Ustad, from from my monk in Burma, from from uh, Joan uh, Ahida and Medium at Silver Healing Sanctuary, but also there are practical uh, practical exercises on meditation and mindfulness, uh, both Buddhist uh, meditation and Sufi meditation. So there's a lovely book, it's a DIY book as well as a beautiful story. And, and uh, I think my publisher said something, he said that, and of course the subtitle, really important, it says, a disciple, the spiritual path to infinite happiness okay mm. so my publisher wrote an article saying that look for 10 pounds if you can get infinite happiness is money well spent <laughs> <laughs> but even if you don't even if you don't it goes to charity yeah. so it's a win-win win-win absolutely <laughs> for rose dada thank you so much for thank adding you, your 10 best spiritual books to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations. It's been a delight to speak with you. Thank you for having me, Sandy. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. So for Rose's books, Children of the Revolution and The Disciple, they're available at all good bookstores and online as well. Uh, for more information about the Inlay Trust charity, visit the website inletrust.org.uk. And if you want to learn about the Sylvan Healing Sanctuary in London, you can visit sylvan, S-Y-L-V-A-N, healing.org. Before we close, 
a few words about the spiritual book market, which, as we all know, is becoming increasingly crowded. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, it's so good to know that spirituality is going mainstream. But it also means that it's becoming ever more challenging to sort the wheat from the chaff, which is why we launched the No BS Spiritual Book Club. So we could provide you with trusted recommendations from authors, teachers, speakers and others who have walked this path before you. So you can check out our free 10 Best Spiritual Books archive, the nobsspiritualbookclub.com, where you can also view previous episodes of this interview series and add your name to our Save My Space list to get last minute reminders of upcoming episodes. And finally, if you feel that you have a book in you, but don't know how to start getting it out of your head, and into the hands of those who are waiting to read it, visit sedgebeer.com, click on the Work With Me tab, and find out how my experience helping others tell their stories might be what you've been looking for. That brings us to the end of this week's show. I'm Sandy Sedgebeer, and I'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, it's goodbye from me.